Hello and welcome to another episode of For the Love of Sports. My name is Michael Raziel and this is the podcast where we get to talk about sports, we get to talk about business and the stuff that happens in between. And today, my very, very incredible guest, Drew Scheinman of Brand Velocity Partners, sports and entertainment veteran. Drew, how are you doing today, man? I'm doing great. Thank you, Michael. Great to be here. Pleasure is all mine. If that last name sounds familiar, we may have interviewed, I may have interviewed Alex, his uh, son, who's doing some incredible things now with, turns out, Kevin Durant and the boardroom and all this stuff. So go check out that episode. It's a few back, but uh, we thought, hey, we got the son. We might as well try and get the dad on as well. So we appreciate you there, Drew. So the first question I have for everybody on the For the Love of Sports podcast is, Drew, why do you love sports so much? I, uh, sports has always been a part of my family. My dad, uh, played baseball. He was a great baseball player. He was actually asked to try out for the Brooklyn Dodgers. Instead, he went into the Navy. So he was a, uh, a Navy veteran, but, uh, my family's always been in and around sports. So he's been a, a common bond and a common theme for my family, get together, celebrations and connectivity with my direct family, my extended family. And uh, I always decided I wanted to be in business as a brand marketing person and a business development person. I decided I didn't want to work for P&G. I wanted to work in sports, very passionate about sports. And I saw great opportunities to get into the business side of sports. So it was a great combination in the early days when sports was becoming a big industry to combine a passion and affiliation and affection and something that I thought I could be pretty good at. Yeah, and it's uh, you, you've had a couple cool stops along the way, which I'm very excited to talk about. One very, very near and dear to my heart, and and technically on my chest right now. So we'll get there. But as you said, it's it's that community, it's that connection that you're going to have because you know you can walk into a bar. I see someone else with a Mets shirt on. You can kind of point at each. I mean, we can't walk into bars right now, but back in the day when you used to be able to walk into a bar, you used to be able to see people. You used to open up a conversation very easily like that, and it's that community aspect. There's really very few things, you know, sports, politics, and religion. Um, and, you know, I don't really like to deal with two of them. So it's right. uh, definitely a couple of those things that really bring people together in, in some of the better situations. So as you said, you saw this opportunity to get into the business side of sports, the brand side, and really help brands come to the forefront. And this is in the late 70s, if I'm not mistaken. You break in with a couple of places in baseball. You're with the you're with Major League Baseball, just right out of the gate. It seems like you had spent some time with the Orioles. And you spent some time with the Mets as well. So I guess what is your affinity with baseball or how how was that the either easiest jumping off point for you or just the best place to start? Actually, it was my uh, and that at that time is my personal passion was baseball. Again, a big part of my family, but also from a business challenge, I always thought it was the most challenging sport because you had the most days of you know attendance requirements and need to fill fans and get fans to be part of the experience and the most extended season. So I thought it was the greatest challenge that was relative to other sports. And again, I got to combine a passion and uh, interest in the sport with something that I thought was a very uh, cool challenge on a business level. And so how, when you're marketing these teams, you know, maybe we can just specifically stick with the Mets. I'm a very big Mets fan. I wore my shirt just for this. Just for this occasion, you should see my apartment. There's a couple more Mets, uh, Mets memorabilia hanging around there. But I guess, you know, specifically with the Mets themselves, you were there in the the run from what 94 uh, 84 to 87 right so there's a couple really really good years in there obviously 86 any Mets fan will tell you near and dear to all their hearts even though I didn't even get to see it I know just about everything I need to know about it but the bad guys won right that was the whole narrative they're all terrible people and you know you look back and you know they probably weren't all the best but being the director of marketing of the New York Mets for that 86 run while I'm sure tickets were selling how was the the PR backlash and making sure people, you know, like what what is that conversation like? Making sure people really understand, hey, it's the, we're good guys, we're not all bad guys. Yeah, well, actually, the the dirty little secrets. I grew up as a Yankees fan. Oh no! And then I I was one of two of the first ever executive trainees chosen for Major League Baseball's training program in 1979, and uh, then I did a stint at the Orioles. So my loyalties to the Yankees were were challenged and changed rather directly to loyalty to the people writing your checks and to the team that you were working for, the Orioles. And actually, the Orioles won a World Series in 1983. And then I got recruited up to New York uh, to work for the Mets. And then the great run in 86 was fun because our whole strategy was to leverage the excitement 
of a great team that we had a great feeling and optimism about them being very successful to recruit and generate the next generation of fans to be Mets fans as opposed to Yankee fans. So all the things going on behind the scenes, which came really more into the fold after the success of the team, we knew we were dealing with something very special and it was a great opportunity to build the future of the franchise and to establish that loyalty and connectivity. Fast forward, 86, the Mets win the World Series. So in the baseball circles, I was not a very popular person because I was under 30 years old and had two World Series rings which was a nice a nice uh, little benefit and accomplishment besides the business success. Yeah, I uh, I was just about to ask, do you have a golden touch? Uh, you know, what are you yeah. doing from a marketing perspective that other teams are not? Because it seems like you go somewhere and good things happen. And I, I just think it's so cool, just the opportunity. I mean, you're so you're with the Orioles for a few years. You know, they were very, very good in the late 60s, early 70s as well. One of the Mets might have stolen uh some people may say world series from them at in 69 as well and then you move on to 86 obviously where the mets win again i mean what is it like you know being a part of some of these prestigious franchises where now you know the narrative's a little different but back then especially you know the mets were still kind of new ish the orioles have been around for a little while how do you work on you know history versus as you said trying to make sure that you're you're starting to recruit those new fans to you know be the next lifelong fans it's a great question because it's always that delicate balance particularly back in in those days dare i say in those days which sounds really old but uh because there was the the great challenge was to promote baseball as entertainment and you know in those days baseball was a very conservative sport still is to some extent today but certainly changed but you really had to work outside the lines and stay within the lines to maintain the integrity of the game, but push, you know, push the envelope with bringing in entertainment, you know, videos and content and all the things that today are so routine. Back in those days was, was really quite innovative and quite successful. So we did a lot of those things and, and we had a lot of success with that, but you always had to protect the inter- integrity of the game. And the franchises certainly I work with, the Orioles in particular, had a great you know success throughout the years and very, very rigid in terms of how far they would go. So you had that also had the right personality. And I think this is a good lesson for people who want to get into the business. You have to have the right personality because you're never going to revolutionize a sport or anything related to sports. So you could evolve, but you have to really still be very uh, protective of the brand and, and what the sport represents. And we're able to do that with both the Orioles and the and the Mets very successfully. And I think that's a good thing, right? Like there there is there. I mean, as you said, there's that fine line, right? We like baseball is still, I feel like, stuck back in like the 1800s in certain situations. Obviously, starting to move the game forward, and hopefully, they open up a little bit more, and we'll see what happens. But I, I just think it's so cool that you've been able to do. You were able to do so much at a very beginning point of your career, as you said, a lot of baseball, uh, I'm sure writers and executives were not super happy with you yeah. knowing that you're just going around winning all these World Series. Um, so eventually you do leave the Mets uh, to st- stay in the New York City area. It looks like you hung out at the MSG company for a little bit. Now, again, this is way back. So I don't think the Knicks or the Rangers won anything in those. Yeah, I guess that's where the magic touch thing kind of wears off. So... <laughs> But, I lost. I lost that at that time. It was one of the bad, uh, bad periods for both the Knicks and the Rangers. But we still had great success at the Garden and did some really innovative things. And so one of one of the cool things in my career, I've worked for teams, team owners. I've worked for a venue in Madison Square Garden. I worked for a property in the Breeders' Cup World Championship. I worked for a top sponsor in Coca Cola. I worked partners with athletes which we'll talk about and they also work for the largest agency in the world in endeavor so it's kind of cool to have had the perspective of all those points but the garden certainly madison square garden the world's greatest famous arena uh was was a real special thing to to be involved in and so when you're working for a property like msg or, or venue as you said you know with with the knicks with the rangers all the concerts everything else that goes on there how much different mm-hmm. is that especially from a a mindset standpoint than saying hey we have the mets this is what we're doing this is how we're doing it now you're moving over to okay well now we have two professional teams both very big in new york city as you said both not doing so great right now and then you have all the other stuff thrown on top of it. What exactly, how much more, how much different is that type of job from one place to the other? 
it's it, yeah. In principle, the the responsibilities are mostly the same, but in terms of and one of the things I've always enjoyed in sports and in life in general is just an intellectual curiosity. So when you go from baseball, which is you know eighty home games of one sport, to the diversity and the variety that comes with the Garden, that was really that was really satisfying to me. And a chance, given the role I was in, to be involved in all things, pretty much having to do with the Garden basketball, hockey, the circus, concerts, et cetera. That, that was a really uh, enjoyable experience. Obviously hard work, like everything is, but it was a great experience. And then one of my responsibilities was to leverage the expertise and the notoriety of the garden outside the facility. And that's where I came up with the Major League Baseball All-Star Fan Fest in 1991, which we took the garden's production capability my background in baseball and combined it for the first ever fan event. And now there's fan events that exist in every sport. We've created a cottage industry, but that was a great you know, point of success and a level of entrepreneurialism to actually do something outside of the facility and to really create a new industry, which is, which is also a great accomplishment. Yeah, it seems like you're just you're just building upon building upon building upon everything again. I'm excited. I'm excited to get to the Endeavor and the Breeders' Cup part of this conversation, yeah. but I think we have a little while to go before we get there. And so with um, you know, with like working for MSG again, you know, like did I gotta ask, were you did you coin the phrase world's most famous arena? I did not. Mm. I did not. I think I, I don't know the exact date, but probably should, but that that existed before me. I'd like okay. to say I'd like to say I did, but I did not. I was gonna say at this point I feel like everything you touched became gold. So that might have just uh, been too kind. Stop it. Um so so you're working at MSG for a couple of years. Uh you then move on, as you said, you you worked at a an incredible venue like MSG, but you've also worked at one of the biggest sports sponsors in the entire world. If I'm not mistaken, right now the biggest sports sponsor in Coca-Cola. So you were there for a few years back in the 90s one of the biggest being the 96 olympics mm-hmm. what what like so now again so you've done a couple baseball seasons won a world series a couple world series which is kind of incredible you know you've gone to msg where you've worked with a bunch of different things going on now you're working with uh, a property in coca-cola and and i saw the list it was way too wrong long to write you pretty much did i felt like every single sport while you were there but the olympics in particular the biggest event every four years obviously this year is a little weird but the biggest event every four years how much can you give us, I guess, a, a scale on the size of the a World Series, like with the Orioles versus the Olympics in 1996? Like how big and how how different are those two things that are going on? Uh, I would say dramatically different for sure, just in terms of the size, the scope, the scale, obviously the global you know, uh, connection and association with that. But even more importantly, because it was the Olympics coming to Coke's hometown in Atlanta. So that added a whole nother dimension. A lot of people thought that Coke bought the Olympics and paid for him to come to Atlanta. Little did they know how much pressure and how much more Coke had to spend to put on a great show in Atlanta. And I'm very proud to say I was I was a big part of that in creating the Coca-Cola Olympic City, which was a 90-day theme park, like Disney Junior theme park. Mm-hmm. And it was, uh, it was a great success. And that was a big part, a great showcase for the Olympics coming to Atlanta and doing all the right things that a, a big sponsor of the Olympics like Coke should be doing around the Olympics in their hometown. Yeah, in the hometown. I think that part is just absolutely crazy. That just, as you said, it adds another layer because you can't, nothing, everything has to not only be perfect, but it has to be to the nines. It has to be yeah. so significantly bigger. So w- talk to me a little bit, like what exactly goes into planning something like that? Like how many man hours, how many people are we talking about? And like, what is, again, the scale and the scope of something like that? How how many years in advance are you guys trying to plan this to, again, make sure that it's going well above and beyond? So it's probably, I'd say, probably uh, three, four years in advance in the planning. Uh, the particular uh, Olympic City theme park, which I created, I was responsible for, was probably two and a half, three years. But I like to say the funny part, as you can imagine, presenting an idea like that inside a company like Coca-Cola is a job unto itself. So people would would not believe until they actually thought about it. I probably presented that plan and vision that I had conceived with a team probably to a thousand people inside the company. Finally, to Roberto Goisueta, who's since passed away, the chairman of Coca-Cola at the time, to get his approval. 
And the approval was to invest you know, $30 million to develop the park with a return on investment, selling tickets, everything associated with that. But it was probably at the time, maybe still today, probably one of the biggest, most visible events that Coke has ever put on, which is quite a statement. But that took you know, a team of 120 plus people and you know, 20 different contract organizations on a service basis. But we really created a, a miniature theme park, which was quite extraordinary. But the highlight of the theme park, being a dad, was the day that the theme park opened, one baby was created and launched in the Olympic City theme park, but two other babies were born as my twin boys, Jake and Alex, were born that day. So it was, no quite, way. It was quite a day. So that was my gold medal award for the Olympics. Nothing better than that. That must have been uh, – I'm, I'm assuming you didn't sleep too much for, for a few days while that was going on. Try to catch up on that sleep, sure. That is too funny. So obviously the Olympics, you know, Coca-Cola has been just a major, major sponsor of the Olympics. They do so many things. I mean, obviously you do this this theme park, but an experiential event, it seems like it's it's almost not just expected, but it's it's encouraged and people are are excited for it now moving forward. Was this one of the first, I guess you could almost say, experiential type opportunities that Coca-Cola really ran into, especially around the Olympics? Yeah, so it actually led to a whole uh, development of category of experiential branding for Coca-Cola. So the the kind of internal messaging was for years, Coke being such a big sponsor in sports was really, really sponsoring through putting wallpaper up, mm-hmm. signage in stadiums. But that really had very little qualitative impact. It might have had quantitative impact, but didn't have the qualitative impact and connection with passionate consumers that we wanted to develop. So that was the basis of dimensionalizing the brand and giving a giving a chance for consumers to actually experience the brand in a very dramatic way, in a very dynamic way, as opposed to just signage. So we created a theme park. There were so many different elements of that where people could actually go and really understand what the brand was all about and bring it to life in a way that heretofore had never been done before. And also do it for other, we also had other supporting sponsors. So they were also part of the same experiential branding extension. I think what you saw also the same thing with the Olympic Park, what you saw after the 96 Olympics, that was probably the first year to really establish the value of a brand to dimensionalize itself in an experiential way which now, now is a huge, huge industry. So you've created FanFest for MLB. You've created experiential marketing. Is there anything else? Did we miss something when you were working at the MLB teams that I, I'm not aware of? That's fine. That's uh, tough. We're good? Mm-hmm. All right. Just wanted to make sure I don't want to miss out on anything because it seems you're not, like... No, you're, you're doing well. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, no, but I, I think it's just so cool. And, and and then outside of the Olympics, obviously, you've done... You did so much with Coca-Cola. Again, them just being one of the biggest sponsors. What was it like again, doing everything that you had to do around the Olympics, as you said, it being in Atlanta, it being in Coke's hometown, you guys didn't quite pay for it, but I'm sure conspiracy theorists on the internet will say whatever they need to say. But outside of that, I mean, working with MLB, NFL, like all these other properties, teams, players, what was that like now instead of, again, just working for the teams in the the Mets and the Orioles, instead of working for the properties, now you're you're on the other side of the table and using that expertise and that knowledge and those desires to now be able to go to them with an offer that made sense. What was that like and how much fun were you having being able to flip uh, flip the script a little bit? It was actually, it was very satisfying on multiple levels. I got recruited to Coke in large part because I wanted somebody who came from the other side of the, of, of the negotiating table, so to speak. So Coke Historically, it has been largely all Coca- Coca-Cola executives groomed you know, for a long time right out of college. So they want somebody who knew the inside aspect of the sports world and was really part of the fraternity on the other side of the table. So for me, when I got to Coke, it was really helpful to help my fellow brethren out on the other side from properties and teams, et cetera, and really to understand what their needs were to develop true partnerships, not just we're going to beat the crap out of you and get the best deal, but really try to figure out how to work together in a very collaborative way. So that perspective was very helpful to the people we were negotiating with, as well as the other colleagues that I was working with at Coke. In fact, I remember one of the times I went to, I was a speaker at the uh, IEG event marketing conference, and I got up and I gave a presentation about how, if you're going to sell your sponsorship to Coca-Cola, Here's how to do it from somebody who's now on the inside who was 
previously on the outside selling. And they told me it was one of the most, you know, compelling speeches that anybody ever gave. Because I really felt like that was part of my job to create a better level of efficiency on both sides of the table, having having the benefit of that perspective. Yeah. I mean, it makes your job a heck of a lot easier, right? Yeah, because now you don't. Everybody's, it makes the industry better. Honestly, you, know? you don't have to ask all these follow up questions. You can just pretty much give everybody, hey, I need these this information. If you can right. give me this, we can start to have that conversation, which I think makes sense. As you said the word efficiency obviously speeds that up on your end, on their end. Everybody's better, everybody's happier. And and with that, I guess how taking taking everything you learned from the other side, now learning and and starting this experiential side. How like when you're then going to these teams and these other partners, were you using this experience? aspect, this experiential branding and marketing, were you introducing that into other ways, into new areas? Well, that was a big part of it. And uh, many of the stadiums and arenas you'll see today don't have, again, the typical signage, like the you know, AT&T Park where the Giants played. You'll see that big Coke bottle, which is a signature uh, element of the signage and the sponsorship of Coca-Cola. Same thing with Fenway Park. So you see that in a lot of the other stadiums and arenas. And there's a new group created after I left Coke that took that on and, and pushed it forward, but very definitely changed the whole dynamic of what a sponsorship would look like and how to work more in partnership, but more importantly, how to really maximize the impact. And frankly, you couldn't afford to do that in every stadium arena. So there's a large part of it was a big you know, analysis to figure out where were the best arenas and stadiums and markets that were most important. But if we're gonna do it, we're gonna activate it properly. Versus the old days of you know pretty much putting up signage and selling product. Yeah, I think that's it's such a boring way of doing marketing, right? Just being yeah. like, "Hey, Coke's here." It's like, "Awesome, thanks, guys. Really appreciate." It. Like that's there. There's so much people can do, and obviously, you are very much on the forefront of that. That I think that's where if it hasn't already gotten to, which we've seen outside of the influencer world, which is a lot of that same stuff. I mean, if you do it correctly, it's not quite, but there are so many other things you can do, especially on the experiential side. That's just, it really impacts people more and it really creates that emotional connection, which is what a sponsorship, what a partner is looking to do, right? You're trying to create emotional connection. So that way, when they remember this event, they remember Coca-Cola with it. Right, right. I used to say like the, like the Olympic City theme park, the whole strategy was for the consumer to come through an entertainment window, not through a Coca-Cola, I'm going to bash you over the head, you know, with Coke signage and, you know, visibility, et cetera, but come through a different entertainment window, come through that experience. Once you come through that window, you're definitely going to walk out knowing that Coke was the sponsor, but the impact is going to be that much greater. And we have studies and, you know, tons of research to, to support that. I love it. I got, I got to ask, what were some of the names of the rides? Like, did you have like a fountain soda? Like, like, did you have yeah. any fun like that? Well, we had a mini uh, Coke, you know, world of Coke, which was like delivering, treating people to product. We actually had a discovery center venue. So discovery produced an entire mini theater on site as one of our sub sponsors. We had uh, racing. It's funny when I think about it now, because technology is so far advanced. You know, think about some of the, you know, technological advancements in, in entertainment, but we had racing against Jackie Joyner Kersey and we had like shot putting of it all like put yourself into the experience. We had not a, unlike the Disney kids, we had the Coca-Cola Olympic city dancers. So we actually did, this is all part of going into how insane I was to actually conceive a temporary theme park, but we actually did tryouts for the dancers. Not like if you were a Disney dancer, and we had them and it was it was awesome just just to see the impact in the community and around for people wanting to be involved in the Olympics and giving them a chance to do that was pretty extraordinary. I think that's that is awesome, man. I, I think that is just too cool. I'm very grateful that we got to to chat about that yeah. a little bit again with Coca-Cola being one of the biggest and you being at, you know, at the forefront of, of some of these things. I think it's pretty darn cool. So after Coca-Cola, it looks like you. Did you leave sports, Simon Property Group? That doesn't seem like very... Well, I left sports indirectly. The Simons own the Indiana Pacers. And uh, given everything I had done at Madison Square Garden and Coke, I got recruited. So I was the non-soft drink guy at Coca-Cola, right? And then I became the non-mall guy recruited by David Simon and Herb and Mel Simon to come in and run their brand ventures group as they were uh, in the process of aggregating a number of shopping malls to create the first ever single owned shopping mall network. 
So, and they knew what I did at the garden and knew, knew what I did at Coke. So effectively they want to create 250 Madison Square Gardens and network the malls. So it was one of, the, one of those once in a lifetime opportunities to go work for the biggest player, biggest player that certainly understood my value proposition, but a chance not just to define a new industry for the company, but to define it really for the entire mall industry and realist commercial real estate industry. And that was like once of those once in a lifetime opportunities, I had to do it. And I love the people I work with and it was it was great. It was just a you know very big you know opportunity to to be involved with the leading players in the industry who still own the Indiana Pacers. So Okay. So you're still you're still kind of connected. I like that. I like Yeah. But it's part of you know, part of like you see in my career path is um I am a very curious person by nature. And I'm by nature always thinking about new opportunities to be disruptive. And when you get a chance to do that in sports, certainly it's welcome somehow in and around sports. It's certainly welcome. Didn't take away or detract from my love of sports. I'll tell you that. I think it is absolutely fantastic. Did you, so, so again, that's just another thing that you created essentially. We'll add that to the list. I'll have a running total at the end. Don't worry, everybody. I'll have it all written down somewhere. But with that, I mean, did you, did you miss working, you know, directly with the teams, with the players, with the leagues at all? Or was it something that you were just having so, so, so much fun, again, creating this entire new thing that you could kind of, hey, I'm still getting to go to Pacer games every once in a while. It's not too bad. It was such it was such a, uh, a broad platform and the challenge was so enormous uh, in an industry that was equally as dynamic to the sports industry. I missed it. A little bit, but I was still involved indirectly based on some of the other relationships we had in and around sports and, and entertainment. So, and again, so it's an interesting transition because when you step outside of sports a little bit, you're you get to be a fan almost back to where you started in your origins of becoming a fan. You're always a fan. You always love sports for all the reasons we talked about at the beginning: community, religion, etc. But you really get a chance to enjoy sports at a different level and it, and it changes. Obviously you have family it changes as well. So it was uh, it was a great experience and well worth the ride. And, and I guess with that, I'll, I'll ask the question, did, did that hurt working in sports for you at all? And I mean, obviously, as you said, you've, you've done some fun things, you've enjoyed your time, but not being able to, again, going work to work for the Baltimore Orioles and not really being able to openly root for the Yankees or going to the Mets and the same thing. Did that ever kind of, take away a little bit of that love for you or, or was it just you enjoyed the business aspect somewhere? Well, it changed and it's interesting because the love uh, got transferred to my family. I used to joke when the Orioles were, you know, in the playoffs in the World Series and the Mets were in the playoffs in the World Series, I'm working my A off, right? My family got to enjoy it and, you know, arguably they had more fun than I did, but it, ultimately I did just fine. <laughs> so, but you get to enjoy it at different levels, you know, so once you you have a sports fan, you know being that kind of enthusiasm, you never lose that ever. And if you do, then you're in and around the wrong business. Honestly. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And that's always a question. I like it, it does change. It does change. You know, certainly if you're working for a team like I was a pretty diehard Yankees fan, as I said, but working for the Orioles, I had to make some adjustments for sure. Yeah, I don't. I don't see any um, Yankees uh, championships in your in your <laughs> background. You didn't show me any of those today, so just saying. Just yeah. saying, maybe you'll work for them one day and, you know, 20 yeah, years. They have on their own. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I think they're they're just fine. But I always like to ask that question because I think it's really important. You know, we the reason we want to work in sports is because we love our team. We love the sport so much. But once you start working in it, you know, now you're not hanging out on your couch on Sunday with your friends, you know, eating chicken wings. You're you're at the you're at the ballpark. You're yeah. at the stadium. You're working, you know, and it's it's not quite the same thing. So I always appreciate a little insight there and kind of how you dealt with that, especially in the beginning. Yeah, well, yeah, certainly I want to be involved in sports, you know, working in the business because my love of sports, but also the love of the people in the industry. So I'm very proud to say I have a lot of great friends who have, you know, built relationships with over the years, going way back to kind of the origins of when sports really took off. So that's the other big part is the people in the industry. And certainly now, generationally, when my two boys are involved in sports, there's nothing better than that. Uh, but that's a big part of, I think if you ask most people why they're involved in sports, they would say the people as well. 
Yes. Yeah. I mean, you got to love the people you work with. You got to love because they're all crazy sports fans, too. Yeah. Right? And fan is short for fanatic. We're all crazy and we love it. Um, but uh, I do think that's really interesting. So after working on this gigantic network of malls, you know, again, still getting to go to Pacers games, as you said, stepping away a little bit. You then kind of come back into the industry a little bit working with Tiki Barber, correct? Mm hmm. So yeah. how how does something like that come back up? Like, was that working with the Simon Group? Was that kind of on a project? You did what you needed to do and then you wanted to get back in? Or was it, yeah. again, an organic just kind of, hey, I kind of want to get back into what we were doing before? Well, it's really, it wasn't, uh, it was organic to the extent that when I worked for Simon, I used to go to the big real estate shows, ICSC, and we should sit down with Magic Johnson. And oftentimes a Magic would be coming to pitch his real estate uh, ventures to the Simons. And like one one of the days I, I remember like leaving the meeting and said like, why is this the only guy doing this? Why is he the only athlete in business at this level? Long story short, fast forward I, as a Giants fan, as you are, uh, Tiki Barber was uh, one of my favorite players. But I was really fascinated by his his charisma, his his notoriety off the field and the things he was doing outside of playing football. And I... Bob Tish, who owned the Giants, you know, at the time since passed away, was one of my mentors. And I went to Bob and I said, Bob, look, I, you know, I really think there's an opportunity for Tiki to be the next Magic Johnson. And I'd love if you could make an introduction, which he did. And I met Tiki and his business manager, agent Mark Lepselter. And I said, look, I have this vision. I think you could definitely replicate what Magic Johnson did. You're you've got the same gravitas, you got the certainly the intelligence. You know, you're younger in, in, you know, by 12 years or so. I said, and this is what I'll do for you. I'll organize the entity. I'll put all the pieces together and I'll introduce you to the business world. So we did. We created Tiki Ventures. And my plan was eventually to do that with Tiki and Rondé, his twin brother. And then over time to scale that with other talent, although there was certainly enough to do it with Tiki. So we did. We put the entity together. And I went out to my network. One of the first people we met with was Steve Ross, who I had known from the mall industry. So Steve now owns the Dolphins. Most people know him as only the Dolphins. Little do they know he's had a, a nice little career in real estate, commercial real estate. And uh, Steve loved what we, what we were doing. And our first deal was creating a joint venture with Steve Ross, excuse me, and his affordable housing business. So right out of the gates, we had a extraordinarily valuable joint venture in affordable housing with Steve Ross, you know, prominent real estate guy. This is before we bought the Dolphins. And we were well on our way. And, you know, we had some great success with that. Also introduced him to Michelle Obama, who, you know, is part of her, her Let's Move campaign. So Tiki was the spokesman of that. So a lot of really great positioned opportunities for him to be a, a very well-received business person. And, and with something like that, you see it a lot now, but you didn't quite see it as much in the past when again you you probably created it let's just be honest at this point yeah, <laughs> but um no i mean one thing you see now a lot with athletes starting businesses or becoming investors and then using their personality using their face using their influence to go and drive traffic or drive opportunity more and more opportunity because more people are willing to sit down with tiki barber than they are michael Raziel, unfortunately at this point in time now if i keep hanging out with you i don't know what yeah, that's gonna happen right. we'll see what happens there but how did is that something were you looking at it from that sense where again magic johnson if someone said magic johnson wanted to sit down with you i feel like every single time you're going to take that meeting was that kind of one of the reasons or one of the ideas behind hey a, you got paid a couple more bucks than most people. Your career is going to be a little bit shorter. But B, you now have this face, as you said, this gravitas that you can go out there and now we can start meeting with more and more prominent people. Was that something that you thought of in the moment? No question. No question. Because I saw it magic. I studied magic from having met with him a couple of times and yeah, really studied his business and his success. And he used his celebrity like in a very profound way to change the world you know, in a social sense and change the world in a business sense. And he worked his tail off, insanely hard worker. And not that many people know that about magic because people think a celebrity doesn't work that hard. But so absolutely I saw that and I saw the potential for Tiki to replicate that in his own way. There are things that he was very passionate about, education, childhood activities, things like that, health and wellness. And I thought it was a great opportunity to do well and do good at the same time. 
And that's something that I've been a strong advocate of personally. And I thought the opportunity to do it around a celebrity who had that access combined with my access and network, but who could really make a difference. That was really appealing. And then to do it well and knowing that we were at the very early days of this phenomenon now that exists today at such scale that if we did it right, we could also do it and help other athletes who also needed that kind of assistance. That is awesome. Plus, yeah, you get to do it with one of your football, uh, favorite football players, right? Yeah, that was, that was part of it too. Could be worse. Could definitely be worse. And I guess, I mean, obviously, again, it makes sense. It's one of those things when, when you're listing off all these things that you've done, me sitting here, you know, 20, 30, sorry, 40 years in advance in some of these places, like it makes sense. All of this stuff absolutely makes sense. It, it's a no brainer. But again, when you were doing it, it wasn't, it wasn't like, you know, it was the idea was out there. Someone just kind of had to take it, cultivate it and put it there. And it's just, just so happens to be you three, four, five times. Now I think we're up to, uh, with, with some of these incredible ideas, like uh, what haven't you created? I guess maybe that's a better question, right? <laughs> that that's probably a subject for another show. I don't know. That, that's uh, yeah. I've got time. If you do, Drew, believe me, I will make it for you. So I think, I, I think, that, I think what I love about what you're doing, your podcasts and, and how you're approaching the love of sports, like there's a love of sports as a spectator, the love of sports for business and, and what you're doing also to help inspire young people who want to get in the, in the business. who don't really understand what the business is about. They might think they do, but they're learning now. It's much easier to learn and understand than it was when I was getting in the business, but really in any industry, when you're when you're a curious person, it creates a lot of opportunities. But then once you create the opportunities in the in a sensitive idea, execution's a whole other story, right? How you make things happen, right? How do you get shit done? If I can say that word, yeah, you already said it. It's not a big deal. No, you're 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 completely correct. I mean, everybody has an idea, right? You know, we're all in those group chats. We all have our friends. Like, oh, this is a great idea. It's like, all right, well, are you gonna do it, or are you just kind of gonna like? forget about it and then just go sit back back down on your couch i mean you have nine to five means that there's another few hours in the day that you can still work uh, on that those right. extra things so it's always very interesting to me to see the people that actually are doing it again like your son obviously he takes after you i mean creating deals with kevin durant and rich Kleiman, that doesn't happen by accident right like getting mark cuban to come on a, a show to help college students and high school students you know, now during this pandemic, I just thought that was a great idea. I've been able to share some of the things and, and I just think it's absolutely fantastic what Alex has been able to do. Unfortunately, I haven't been able to interview Jake yet. So I guess I'm going to have to get him on soon too. There I think that'll go. be pretty important. But so uh, you're working with Tiki Barber. You're really helping him in this business sense, again, creating connections, helping him cultivate this business. After that, as you you, you alluded to it a little bit before, you then go and work for the Breeders' Cup. What, like how how does how does something like like again where's the organic connection to the breeders exactly, cup uh is again back to being a curious person always wanting to to take chances and do things differently i got a call out of the blue from a top recruiter in the industry and they said drew like uh calling on behalf of the breeders cup horse racing world championship and they're looking the board is looking for an innovation leader i said well that i like that kind of seems true to what I've been doing. Uh, and they said, by design, they want somebody who knows nothing about horse racing. I said, well, that's definitely me. <laughs> like, so I've been to a horse racer too. So uh, fast forward, I did my due diligence and met with the board and traveled the world, et cetera. And it was uh, an extraordinary exp experience to bring a vision to one of the greatest events in the world around one of the greatest sports in the world, which you know has had its challenges for sure, working with some of the most beautiful animals, athletes in the world, and to bring like a very objective perspective to the table, working alongside Bobby Flay, who was on the board of the Breeders' Cup, who's now a friend, and, and others, and many celebrities who just love horse racing. One of the things that struck me was how many people are so insanely passionate about horse racing. So my job as the outsider with, again, insane objectivity was to help take that perspective and spread the gospel literally and figuratively around the world, going giving speeches at events and really promoting all the beautiful things that I saw through the, the world of horse racing. Because a lot of people's perception is it's like smoky OTB parlors and degenerate gamblers and but there's this whole other side of, of the industry, which is really quite extraordinary.
Yeah, it's it's either what you just described or people in fancy hats that we see at the Kentucky yeah, Derby. I feel like those are the two crowds, but I'm sure that there's a lot of middle ground there. And again, that's something you're able to figure out and cultivate. And and again, it seems like a lot of these stops along the way, you're coming from that. How do I want to say it? You're coming from that outside, that outsider's point of view, right? Like from Coca-Cola, you weren't a Coca-Cola guy. They kind of wanted somebody that wasn't a Coca-Cola guy to come in. You were obviously Breeders Cup. That was pretty easy. They they asked specifically someone that had no idea with horse racing. And I've seen it personally in my career coming into places where everybody is the same and they all come from the same place. And you see that the ideas don't really percolate and cultivate nearly as much as if you have people from all of these other places so how have you been able seems like you've been a pretty darn good job of it but how do you where do these ideas come from and how do you take in all this information that again you need some sort of base right you need the people from the breeders cup to let you know what the heck's going on but then how do you build on that well it's a great question one of the things i remember counseling a bunch of students years ago about how to be successful in sports or any industry for that matter. I said, if you're going to interview for a sports job, stop reading ESPN magazine or sporting news. Like go read, you know, fashion magazine and go read a technology fast company or wired magazine, go and really get smart about everything around the sport, right. And around the industry, because that's going to help you be more successful rather than people who just come in with a straight focus on on an industry or an opportunity like you really have to spread your expansion of thought and that drives innovation and drives value and in today's world that's that's absolutely critical so for the breeders cup i made a deal with the board i said all right i'll take the job but one of the first things i want to do i want to go on a listening tour for 30 days i want to go around around the world and i want to go put together a list that you will help me create of people who have you know billionaire horse owners or degenerate gamblers, or celebrities, or people in the fashion world who loves who love the sport. Like, really, go build my brain in a way that will help me do my job better. And I did. I didn't start in the office until you know basically thirty first day or so, and and it was extraordinary. Not only was it really helpful for me to frame my thinking and my strategy for going forward but also helped me to co-op some of the great leaders along the way because they're like, wow, this guy's coming at it from a great perspective. We want to help him. And that was hugely valuable. And a great lesson because that applies to any new job or any new situation. That same approach, I think, is is hugely valuable. Yeah, I, I think if I'm not mistaken, your son may have done the same thing. I, I can't remember the, the the company he was working at, but he said he pretty much just went into everyone's office and was like, hey, can I... Can I just get five minutes? I'd love to talk, sure. learn a little bit about you and what, see, hear what's going on. And again, it was hugely successful for him. I wonder where he got that information. Yeah, I'm not going okay. to point fingers or anything. So you you go to the Breeders' Cup. You're there for a little while. Again, not knowing anything about the sport, you then go on this listening tour, which I think is an awesome idea. And I can't wait. If I ever get another job that I'm not the owner of, I'm absolutely going to go do that. But the you then eventually move on again. So it seems like all of these places you're at, you're only there for four, five years, six years. Is that by design? And this is you're then leaving the Breeders' Cup to go to Endeavor, as you said, the biggest agency essentially in the world. Is that by design? Or was this just, again, these organic opportunities that just keep coming up and you just have to keep saying yes? This combination, part of it was by design. Because, you know, some of these situations when you come in as a change agent and, and creating vision, Sometimes it has an expiration date, whether it's actually forced or whether you actually realize it. Sometimes you realize the change that you want to promote can only go so far. So in the case of the Breeders' Cup, when, when Endeavor, William Morris IMG approached me, they had approached me for some time while I was at the Breeders' Cup. And that was right when the uh, merger was happening with WME and IMG. And I said, well, I'll wait on the sidelines. Let's see how the merger goes through. And when I come in, I want to come in on both sides. I don't want to come in on one side versus the other because I know a lot of people on both sides just previously. So I did, and I came in. Originally, I ran corporate licensing uh, for North America and uh, had great success there. We created the first ever agency for 22,000 retired football players, the Football Greats Alliance, in partnership with the NFL. So that was a great uh, success and something I'm very proud of to help football players in need. Uh, and then I transferred over inside the company 
to do two things. One, I was the white space guy, something I had done previously, as you might imagine. But the white space guy, go figure out products, platforms, and applications that we could bring into Endeavor and scale throughout the company. And uh, we did that and created some really cool new businesses, very successful today. But then I also started, one of the reasons I got to Endeavor was for my experience in helping athletes become businessmen and entrepreneurs. And so we created a talent brand ventures division, really uh, designed to get well past the endorsement side of the business and help talent be successful in business. So working across you know, iconic athletes and entertainers, et cetera, and uh, created that along the way. Kobe Bryant was one of my clients. And I, I read about this uh, really cool new technology toy company called Play Monster. I was like, wow, this is perfect for what we want to do with Kobe. I reached out to the owner of the company who I didn't know. I just called him cold. And uh, his name was Steve Leibowitz. And he was a partner in a private equity firm. And long story very short, Steve struck me as one of those rare finance guys that actually understood my world of branding and marketing and disruption and white space and all those things. And he was uh, a rare guy, you know, very kind finance guy. And we hit it off. And on that basis, I had, again, a vision of how an industry that was ripe for disruption, and that's the world of investing in private equity. And I had this idea for typical private equity companies come in, buy companies and cut costs and then flip the companies and sell the companies. Why not actually, instead of cutting costs, why not actually invest in the branding and the marketing and all the ways that you could grow business organically? And that would create a whole new model of value in investing. But I couldn't do that on my own because I didn't have the investment experience that my now partner, Steve, Steve does. So Steve has you know 25 years of private equity experience. So with that, we created Brand Velocity Partners, uh, which has been in business for about a year and a half or so. And we closed our first two deals, one at the end of last year, one at the beginning of this year. And we're in the process of closing our third deal uh, by the end of summer. So, which is in the investment world is, is, is quite an accomplishment, but more importantly, we've established ourselves as a very differentiated approach to investing and back to sports or not sports. <clears throat> while we're looking at many deals in the sports space and we hope to acquire one in, in the near future, the deals that we have, I wouldn't say are directly in sports, but they have a sports connection to really drive the value of the brands we're involved in. So there are different ways to be in sports without being fully immersed in sports. And consistently it's always been, and will always be a threat in my life, but opportunistically you don't want to have to go buy a baseball team to say you're an investor and involved in the sports business. You can bring sports into any situation as a tactic and as a really important and valuable strategy. And especially again, you know, speaking with with athletes as well, right? You know, you know, the great Kobe Bryant, of course. You know that just that initial conversation that you you and Steve had to now get to where you are. You know that that toy company wasn't a sports company, right? It was yeah. just it made sense to work with an athlete like Kobe Bryant right. with him with all his daughters and everything. I'm assuming, obviously, don't know too much about the deal itself, but with that, I mean, so what you're doing now at Brand Velocity Partners. Is that, do you look through a lens of sports or are both of you just coming from your separate worlds and understanding what each of you have to do to then say, hey, if we can fit this in, you know, this square peg into this square hole of sports, you know, we'll do it because of the impact sports has as, as, as a, a cultural phenomenon. So uh, we look through the lens of the value of the company. So uh, largely focused on consumer brands. So as an example, the first company bought original footwear is the largest manufacturing distributor of military footwear in the world. And today, actually, was doing a shoot with Jay Glazer, who we brought on board as an ambassador because Jay is very authentic to the military. He's got a military foundation you probably know about. Uh, and he's also very much into mixed martial arts and that whole world, which is part of the growth opportunity for our company. So that's a great example where there's a connection that makes sense. Eventually, the footwear company will evolve into that space. But so Lens is not necessarily sports. It's really about the consumer brand equity and value as, as an investment opportunity. And as sports relates to that, that's great. There will be some direct sports investments over time, for sure. 
and we're out there looking for for those uh, as we speak. I love it. This yeah. has been incredible, Drew. All, all the stuff that you've done. I mean, that Jay Glazer one just shows. I mean, if everything else didn't show how smart you are, I mean, obviously, I know we all know who Jay Glazer is. We know about his MMA gym that he has out in L.A. I actually know one of his partners, uh, Lindsay Napella Berg. She's oh, an cool. incredible, incredible. Yeah. She's a volleyball player um, yeah. doing some amazing stuff as well. So shout well, out to Lindsay. But. Well, all of this is very important. You're being very kind and complimentary, but it, it takes a team. Yes. Yeah, and if you don't surround yourself with great people, you're never able to accomplish things. And you don't have a level of EQ combined with IQ, then great ideas will never happen and never be successful because you won't get the support of the people to make them make them happen. Absolutely. And yes, I am being very complimentary, but I think you're being a little humble too. Uh, no, you've done some, some pretty cool stuff. Again, once I saw Mets, I, I, I you had me at you had me at Mets. I'll be very honest with you. But Drew Scheinman, Brand Velocity Partner, Sports and Entertainment Veteran with MLB, Baltimore Orioles, the New York Mets, MSG, Director of Marketing at Coca-Cola, working with Tiki Barber, the Breeders' Cup Endeavor, and now doing what you're doing, man. Drew, this has been absolutely fantastic. I really appreciate your time today. Michael, thank you so much. Really enjoy what you're doing. Thank you.